Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. This is a Vault Studios production. In the hours before she died, when nurses at Emory Hospital asked Diane MacGyver what happened, she told them it was an accident. Her husband, Tex MacGyver, also said it was an accident. I started questioning him. I I leaned in in kind of a comforting manner um, and said, what happened? What's going on? And he said to me, uh, it was an accident. I was... I had the gun in the back seat, and it just went off. Tex MacGyver says he must have dozed off when he was jarred awake by a flash of light and the sound of the gun firing. He says he doesn't recall pulling the trigger and still isn't sure exactly what happened. MacGyver broke down crying as he described realizing his wife Diane had been shot. Because Tex and Diane MacGyver were both patients at Emory Hospital, he says he asked Danny Joe to drive him there and says they arrived within 10 minutes of the shooting. In the aftermath of Diane's death, some of Tex's closest friends are already saying there's just no way it could be anything other than an accident. I know that Tex McIver loved Diane. I've been around them for about 10 years now, and there's no question in my mind but what it was a horrible accident. But at the hospital that night, there were hints of possible trouble in the MacGyver's relationship. So investigators are are, are looking at and trying to figure out, you know, what exactly is the nature of the relationship between Tex and Diane? And it it appears that Diane MacGyver didn't want to see Tex, didn't want to be with the, the man that she married, the man that she purportedly loved. And while Diane was still fighting for her life, there's something else that would catch the attention of hospital staff and later investigators. I'm Caitlin Ross. This is Intent, the Tex MacGyver case, Chapter 2. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. The scene at Emory Hospital that night, according to hospital staff who would later testify, was a strange one. He was emotionless. He did not appear to be upset or distraught. Even the surgeons who found Tex in a hospital hallway to tell him that Diane had died found the attorney's behavior odd. Dr. Syed um, took the lead and said, you know, please, Mr. MacGyver, uh, have a seat. And he was pointing to this chair here. Mr. MacGyver, uh, basically before the sentence was able to uh, be finished, he said... Don't tell me what to do, boy. 
which was um, not, not in a, a threatening way, but in an aggressive way, I would say. Former prosecutor and Court TV lead anchor Vinnie Politan has covered the Tex MacGyver case extensively over the years for my station, 11 Alive in Atlanta. He recalls hearing about the strange string of events that took place inside Emory after Diane MacGyver was whisked into surgery. Once they get there, uh, and there's video of this, surveillance video of, of getting Diane out of the car and inside, and, and there's questions about whether or not uh, Tex was acting appropriately in the videos. Does he show enough urgency to the situation? But once they get into the, ho- in, into the hospital and in the lobby and Diane's being uh, dealt with, there's a, a really strange conversation, according to Danny Joe, that I think begins to put that cloud of suspicion over this entire story, which is he's trying, he's telling her to not say that she drove there, to to lie and leave out the fact that she was in the car when Diane was shot. And that's really where, where things started to take a take a different turn. It's already tragic that Diane's been been shot and killed, but now Tex MacGyver is is in this mode at the hospital where now he's kind of in charge and he's calling his attorney. An ER nurse later testified about her memory of that night and the huddle in the hallway. I had the impression that there was a plan being enacted. They were actually um, kind of huddling like you would think of a sports team, literally holding on to each other in a small circle. The first words that ring, that I vividly remember was the tell them, and then it was like a softer, you know, this is what you're going to tell them as I was like walking past. So everything that's happening um, at, at the hospital at this moment, all of a sudden has a lot of people scratching their heads about like telling people to lie, calling your attorney, not looking like there's a level of, of urgency in, in some of the uh, surveillance videos, all of this really began the suspicion of what exactly happened inside that Ford Expedition, and more importantly, why did it happen? The Quarry Services Tower in downtown Atlanta is lit up with this memorial to the company's president, Diane MacGyver. As police investigate how a gun went off inside the vehicle, Putnam County Sheriff Howard Sills is remembering a close friend of many years. He says the MacGyvers, who divided their time between Buckhead and Eatonton, were philanthropists who were very involved in the community, often entertaining at MacGyver Ranch. Diane was a, was a vivacious, beautiful, entertaining uh, woman who was uh, uh, a lot of fun to, to be around. Based on what I've been told, it certainly appears to me to be an accident and a tragic one uh, for all concerned. As friends and family members grieved the loss of a brilliant and inspiring force of nature, as Diane is referred to in her obituary, an investigation into her death was getting underway, with police interviewing Tex, Danny Joe, who drove the vehicle, and hospital staff, attempting to piece together what happened on the route Danny Joe took through Atlanta on their way home from dinner. It's a route that Vinnie Politan would eventually retrace along with other 11 Alive legal experts. So we retraced the route that Danny, Joe, Diane, and Tex took that night uh, from the highway, down the ramp, under uh, the overpass, and up Piedmont uh, Road uh, to the hospital. And we drove that route. 
So Edgewood Avenue, that's what you see coming up here. That's the exit that they take. He takes out his gun because he doesn't like the neighborhood that he's in. Yes, that this very neighborhood Grady. is something that made him nervous on a night just like tonight. Mo, you live in this area, right? Yes, I live Describe right. this neighborhood for us. You know, this is a historically a black district. A lot of activity down here, and it has been in recent years gentrifying massively. Many things struck me, and, and, and one thing that struck me is that the... Road was relatively smooth. I, I, you know, you're talking about hitting bumps that could accidentally um, have Texas finger, then trigger the weapon. Um, didn't seem to me to be very credible based upon retracing those steps. I think this was about the point where they uh, they went into the console and got the gun. He would have had to fall asleep in between this 10-minute ride from when the gun was given to him out of the console to now it's getting ready to go off. So he was sleeping for the last eight minutes. As he's driving this way, he ought to be getting ready to put the gun away yeah, as things is, are getting better and better area, yeah. as we start to drive. The other part of this drive is that it's a nice part of town. I mean, there's a certain part of town where, yeah, we got off the highway, and the night we did it, there were many homeless people that were there. And very quickly, though, you exit that area of, of Atlanta where you might, for whatever reason, feel like uh, there's a safety issue and you need a gun. But once you get out of there, it's very quickly. You're in, you're in a nice part of town. And that also struck me that, like, well, why would you need a gun here? Why would you continue to have that gun in your hand? The other part of retracing the drive is you take that drive, you 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 go past Grady. So you you know the hospital is right there. And it's not that that far past the hospital that the gun is fired. So why would you go to a hospital that is further away rather than just Say, quick, make a U-turn. We, we passed Grady Hospital, you know, a, a few minutes ago. Let's go back there. And when you retrace the steps, it, it, it doesn't necessarily make sense unless you have no idea that Grady has this great trauma center. You, you were asleep when you drove past Grady. You're disoriented. Um, or maybe you're under the influence and you're just not thinking straight. I don't know. Tex MacGyver's blood alcohol level wasn't tested the night of the shooting. Putnam County Sheriff and the MacGyver's friend, Howard Sills, talked to Tex at the time about how alcohol might be factored into the incident. I think that this was an accident. I think they were intoxicated. Okay? I know Tex denied that. I don't believe that. Okay? I actually told him just a couple of days after this I said, uh, Tex, if, if, if you're drunk, they're going to charge you a manslaughter. And again, uh, at the scene and stuff like that, or when I say the scene, immediately after the incident, uh, as I said, I, I personally think, regardless of what they say, they'd been drinking, uh, and that's probably why Danny Joe was driving to start with. Tex's story would raise another question. How does a gun just go off if the gun's in a bag? It's 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 certainly reckless to put a loaded gun that's in a, been cocked in a bag in in a, in a, in a right. console. Didn't Tex say, "Give me the gun"? Yeah. Right, right. But, but the point is, he didn't he take. Did. He did not take the gun out of the bag. 
the gun was handed to him in this in the bag in the bag and that's how and it stayed in the bag stayed in the bag and i think the evidence is going to show that it was fired it was still in the bag for defense attorney and 11 alive legal expert daryl cohen the question goes beyond the mechanics of the weapon i am not a gun expert i've been around guns as a prosecutor i've been around guns as a defense lawyer and as a real person and i believe that if your fingers on the trigger, it could possibly go off. It depends on how much pressure you put on it. And I, again, I'm not an expert, but I think clearly it could have been an accident or clearly could have been intentional. But if it was intentional, how in the world, how in the world could he know that that one bullet, that one shot would succeed in killing her? I just can't buy that. I never have been able to. If I was going to murder you, I wouldn't take a chance of shooting through the back of a car seat uh, with a steel frame in it and things like that because I just, uh, I think the risk of you surviving would have uh, been too great if I intended to murder you. The gun Tex MacGyver was holding the night he shot his wife in the back was a Smith & Wesson thirty-eight revolver. And essentially, there are two ways to fire it, double action and single action. Either way, the gun will only fire if someone pulls the trigger. But double action requires more force because pulling the trigger performs two actions. It cocks the hammer and then fires the bullet. Single action means the hammer has already been cocked, so pulling the trigger only performs one action, firing the gun, and it takes less force. In other words, if the gun is already cocked, it's a lot easier to fire. It can be complex. Revolvers are actually very complex mechanical devices. Um, You know, like I said, when I was in school, it took 26 pages to describe what happens mechanically just pulling a trigger in double action. And uh, there's a lot going on there. Josh Mallett has been a gunsmith for two decades. He wasn't involved in the Tex MacGyver case in any way, only heard about it in the news, but he does know a thing or two about guns. Josh takes a look at a photo of the gun Tex was holding that night and then shows me a similar weapon. I ask him about the difference between the single-action and double-action modes. Well, single-action means that the hammer is cocked to the rear, resting on the sear, and all it takes to drop that hammer is two and a half pounds of pressure on that trigger. About two and a half pounds. Yeah, that's nothing. I mean, that's a really small pull. Mm-hmm. And uh, so if you're in a car and you got your finger on the trigger and you hit that bump, bang, yeah, it could happen. But at the same time, why is your finger on that trigger? Why is the gun cocked? So double action, 18 pounds. You actually have to cycle that hammer. Bang. So that's a way different scenario. Definitely. So one gun can have both modes mm-hmm. then. Mm-hmm. Yes. What's the advantage of having a gun that can do both modes? Uh, safety. Actually, with an 18-pound pull, you're not going to fire it by mistake. That's going to give you time to go, okay, 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 okay. Single action uh, is mostly for accuracy. Because with a double action, with that 18-pound pull, you're <clears throat> and your hand's going to be moving a lot, and you, you're not going to get the inherent accuracy as you would with something where you just got two pounds of pressure and you. So, 
uh, it's, it's, it's a safety and an accuracy thing. In this scenario where he said he was scared, they were lost, it was in an unfamiliar area, what would you advise someone who had a gun to do in that situation? Do you take the gun out? Do you keep it? Well, that's, uh, you know, um, I know people that carry on their body in their car. I know people that carry it on the seat next to them. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of different ways to do it. Um, most of it's personal preference. I mean, there are safety issues, you know. I mean, if you've got it on your seat next to you and it's cocked and you slam on your brakes and it hits the floor, you know, eh, you know, if something gets caught in that trigger, it's possible, you know, but unlikely. Um, if it's not cocked, believe me, you could throw this thing across the parking lot and it's not going to accidentally go off. Uh, the big thing is training. Um, so carrying a gun inside a Publix bag would not be a safe mode no, of transportation. No, that, that, uh, no. And I mean, technically with the passive safeties that they have now, it's unlikely that you'll have an accidental discharge, but nothing is just 100% impossible. You know, uh, even with a passive safety, if you've got a, let's say a SIG P365, you're carrying it in your purse and it, you, it gets hung up on your, you know, whatever. Yeah, if the trigger's exposed, it can get pulled. Unlikely, but still it can happen. Basically, if you've got the common sense that God gave gravel, uh, you're not going to have a, ne a negligent discharge. It's just not going to happen. A lot of people will use that argument, though, that the gun just went off. That happens all the time. People say this was an accidental discharge. The gun just went off. Mechanically impossible. Because if you look at the internals of this pistol, the only way that this pistol can go off is by pulling that trigger all the way to the rear and watching that hammer drop. Okay, that was 18 pounds. That's not going to just go off. And if you look, that hammer, when it's at rest, is disengaged from that firing pin. It cannot strike the firing pin. No matter how hard I push forward, anything like that, it's not going to just go off. Guns do not just go off. Uh, modern firearms have passive safeties in them. Um, so the gun just went off is no longer a valid excuse for negligent discharge or intentional discharge. You're someone who obviously thinks a lot about gun safety. I have to. Yeah. Does it make any sense to you to have your finger on the trigger in a moving car with a loaded weapon? Absolutely not. Um, the only time you should have your finger on the trigger is when you are ready to fire and you are sure of your target. Talk about that a little bit because the only person in front of him was his wife. That kind of sums it up, doesn't it? As all of these questions start to emerge about Tex MacGyver's story, why he was holding a gun pointed at his wife's back, why they didn't pull off at the nearest hospital, why he seemed to be doing damage control in the hospital as his wife lay dying, Tex is setting out to convince the public that he's telling the truth. Well, we've got exclusive new details tonight of the mysterious shooting death of a Buckhead businesswoman at the hands of her husband. Tex MacGyver tells 11 Alive's Valerie Hoff that he passed a polygraph test and his wife Diane's death was simply a horrible accident. A polygraph test taken less than two weeks after his wife died and not at the request of law enforcement, but set up by an attorney. The test had been administered by Richard Ratcliffe with the Federal Polygraph Associates. He's given hundreds of similar tests over three decades, and he spent over three hours with Tex. 
So I went through all the details of background to go through uh, his background, the relationship with his wife, and, and then the details of what happened that particular day. During the three-hour analysis, Tex told Ratcliffe he asked Diane for his gun while driving through the streets of Atlanta, concerned about possible crime in the area. And he said he kind of pulled pull himself up to see where, and when he started pulling himself up, the gun went off. And what he described was just a, a large flash, huge flash. I asked him specifically, did you uh, consciously do anything with a gun that caused it to fire? And did you knowingly cause the gun to discharge inside your SUV? And like he, like he described, uh, all those answers were no. And the results, according to a scoring tool used by the American Polygraph Association, look good for Tex, a more than 99% probability that he's telling the truth. It indicates Tex MacGyver never even took his Smith & Wesson 638 out of the grocery bag he had it stored in. And it lists a series of questions MacGyver answered, including... Did you intentionally fire the gun that night? The report also says MacGyver has fully cooperated with Atlanta police as they investigate whether any crime was committed in Diane MacGyver's death. But polygraph results are generally not admissible in court in Georgia. And there's a reason for that. Former FBI agent Stephen Foster says, in part, that's because there are people who can beat the test. A polygraph is not going to tell you whether the person is truthful or lying. That's not what it does. Some people are just guilt-free. You know, they don't necessarily have a conscience, or maybe they refocus their attention in a different direction, or they control their emotions a little bit. And some people are able, uh, during a polygraph, to tense up their muscles and change the blood pressure uh, in their bodies. While the polygraph would likely not be helpful in court if it came to that, it's a move that defense attorney and legal expert Daryl Cohen told 11 Alive could still benefit Tex. I think it's a brilliant move. Why is it a brilliant move? Because you don't tell people in advance you're going to have a polygraph. You have it quietly and secretly. If you fail it or if it's inconclusive, it's never mentioned again. He passed it, and as a result of that, he can shout it, hang it from the highest flagpole and say, my client passed a polygraph with flying colors. Although Tex has always maintained that this was an accident, some of the details of his story have been difficult to pin down. One key detail being why exactly he was so afraid that night. Bill Crane, a political analyst and family friend who offered his services as a spokesperson to Tex, told reporters early on that Tex was nervous about Black Lives Matter protesters when they were driving through Atlanta that night. Prosecutor and 11 Alive legal analyst Latonia Hines remembers how the statement about Black Lives Matter protesters resonated at the time. Why did you feel just because of Black Lives Matter that you thought that something was going to happen to you? Um, and that racial component was a, a pretty, it's kind of like a, I don't know the best way to say it, it was a very much a, a strong um impression that wanted to be kind of made that he was afraid. But is the question that he was afraid because he was uh, a fluent white man who's getting ready to go into this area where the supposed um, Black Lives Matter um, protest is happening? Or is this convenient to be able to use as the expression of why you thought you needed to have the gun for purposes of covering up what occurred? But even if it is a convenient excuse, a possible reason Tex asked for the gun in the first place Tex would refute the claims made by his friend, telling Eleven Alive it simply wasn't true. 
Now, MacGyver also on the phone with me today adamantly denied ever mentioning Black Lives Matter protests as the reason that he had that weapon in his lap. Instead, Tex says he was concerned about crime in the area and the safety of his wife and friend, Danny Joe. As weeks passed, variations about what happened continued to surface. But which version of events would investigators come to believe? I mean, the guy's name is Tex, right? And he's got this fascination and love of guns. And he ends up with a gun in his hand and a bullet in his wife's back. Next time on Intent, the Tex McIver case. My wife is dead. There's no reason to keep her belongings. Let's get rid of them because I don't want her... I don't want them around me. I don't want to continue to remember how she was. I mean, I think, again, that narrative could have been changed. But that didn't tell me he murdered her or that he didn't murder her. That just told me he doesn't have the best judgment in the world. Intent, the Tex McIver case, is a co-production of Vault Studios and 11 Alive WXIA News in Atlanta. Thanks for all of the support from 11 Alive News Director Jennifer Rigby and my colleagues at 11 Alive, including Addie Haney, Wes Rada, Jack Scott, Kelly Kremis, Jesse Nussman, and Tian Johnson. Also, special thanks to Court TV lead anchor Vinnie Politan and our legal experts Latonia Hines and Daryl Cohen. Will Johnson and Brian Weiss are executive producers with Vault Studios. Reed Redman produces, researches, and edits the podcast. Richard Humphreys at Tacoma Media in Silver Spring, Maryland, mixes and edits the show. You can find me on Facebook at Caitlin Ross 11 Alive or on Twitter at Caitlin Ross 1. 